Blog Talk Radio. Original one. 
Now, G7 nations recently discussed a tax agreement to reduce the level of tax evasion enjoyed by corporations. The G7 nations, U.S., U.K., Canada, Japan, Germany, France, and Italy, are proposing a minimum global tax rate for corporations throughout the world. According to the Guardian newspaper, this tax proposal consists of two pillars. One pillar consists of taxing corporations' revenues in the country they operate. Under this agreement, corporate revenues will be taxed at least 20% of profits, provided their profits exceed greater than 10%. The second pillar seeks to set a minimum tax rate of at least uh, 15%. Now, this plan to ensure corporate responsibility is admirable, and certainly the projected $129 billion in revenue will be helpful in ameliorating governmental budget deficits, in addition to the possibility of using these funds to enhance the social safety net of these countries involved. Like any contractual agreement, the devil is always in the details. By taking a cursory look into the two pillars of this proposed tax plan, much can be gleaned. With respect to Pillar 1, the plan seeks to end corporate manipulation of taxes by declaring the country who hosts the corporate entity, be it a subsidiary or otherwise, will be the recipients of corporate taxes. This plan seeks to eliminate any notion the corporate headquarters is solely responsible for taxes while excluding profits from corporate satellite contributions to profits, thereby lessening, in some cases, eliminating paying any taxes by the parent, uh, parent or headquarters corporation site. Now, the U.S. Constitution is very clear about the autonomous nature of corporations and the right to pursue life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness is deeply enshrined in the U.S. Constitution. As much as we abhor any notion of corporations to characterize as a person, the Equal Protection Clause concedes corporations are citizens. This idea of corporate, corporate, corporate citizenship is buttressed by implied contractual agreement with the U.S. government, which implies the U.S. government must <clears throat> not only allow corporations free reign to formulate policy as they see fit, <clears throat> but to support corporations regardless of the atrocities committed by corporations. The G7 attempts to bring in corporations on the surface sounds progressive, but any meaningful change has to address the structural historical barriers that eliminates any possibility of real change in the U.S. While this tax plan creates the perception of change, the reality is quite different. Lacking the temperament to foment real change, the G7 tax plan fails to elevate the needs of people over corporate interests. If the fundamental attempt is to allow the corporate structure to remain in place while pirating minimum tax increases for corporations to stand, we have seen this game before. Team, the U.S. Congress passed the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. This act, like the G7 plan, was to reduce tax loopholes. Uh, but the plan failed miserably. While the G7 plan specifically seeks to tax corporations globally, this strategy can only be achieved by denying corporations the use of its playbook to avoid taxes. The TCJA Act sought to eliminate that playbook. This armed corporations by limiting corporate loopholes, thereby facilitating access to corporate profit. Despite what appeared to be a winnable strategy, the power of corporations prevailed. One year later, after the passage of the TCJA Act, 379 Fortune 500 companies paid less in taxes. Studies from the Institute of Taxation and Economics indicates these corporations paid an effective tax rate of only 11.3%. And the effective tax rate is the actual taxes paid, while the nominal tax rate is the percentage of taxes that should be paid. So let us not confuse the two. So often the media will talk about nominal, they will talk about uh, effective ta nominal tax rate as though that's the rate the corporation actually paid. That's not the tax rate they actually paid. They actually paid an effective tax rate. Now, the result was shock to the real economy and major decline to U.S. GDP or wealth. Normally, declining GDP would spur nations into action to address budgetary deficits by making changes to corporate taxation rates, not in the U.S. In the U.S., the contractual relationship between the government and corporations must be honored at all costs, even for means sacrificing the economy. Rather than increasing the corporate tax rate from 35% to higher, 
they lowered the corporate tax rate to 21% to increase in part. US, as a result of lower tax, corporate tax rates to 21%, lower corporate taxes increase in part U.S. deficit. Rather than, connect to this def, excuse me, rather than correct this deficit, the U.S. engaged in deficit spending, or if you like, qualitative easing that increased exponentially. Now, ironically, capitalism uh, advocates creative destruction. This, this, <coughs> excuse me, that businesses that can't compete should be allowed to fall. In, in, the, in the U.S., in order to make up for the decrease in revenues from underperforming businesses, rather than let them fall, the government increases creates money to subsidize these falling businesses, contributing to the government's, the government's economic woes. Not only are these businesses propped up, they are subsidized by the government, where the only benefits are due to the capitalist class. While the citizens' taxes assist in funding these failing businesses, the citizens do not derive any benefits whatsoever. The, the creation of more and money is attributed to the failed businesses without end. In fact, a deficit spending money the government doesn't have increased from $666 billion in 2017 to $777.9 billion in 2018 to $984 billion in 2019, according to the Institute of Taxation and Economic Policy. Unless the G7 is willing to confront the U.S. on its constitutional restraints, the notion the U.S. will participate in violation of U.S. corporate interests is delusional. Now, with respect to the second pillar, the desire to tax corporations effectively may be a deal breaker. In an era of declining economies, obligatory tax breaks and subsidies to keep corporations afloat. A 50% may, may not sound excessive, but in the U.S., where corporations on average hire $2 trillion a year, operating capital is very problematic. Over 600 major corporations are zombie corporations. Corporations unable to pay interest on their debt exist in the U.S. In current debt close to $3 trillion yielded paying an effective tax rate of just 9%, these statistics alone reveal the very real hardships a 15% corporate tax rate would impose. In addition to government policy, which imposes sanctions on nation states, these policies contribute to declining corporate profitability. A bigger factor may be the $36 trillion in personal offshore accounts. According to the Paradise Papers, safe havens for the wealthy to have their wealth was cataloged in a 36,000-page document documenting the ways in which wealth can be hidden. Wealth that can be used for educational needs, infrastructure, job development lay idle. The fact wealthy people fight vehemently to protect the shelters speaks volumes. Philosophically speaking, wealth or the attainment of wealth is the only primary motivation in life, and any discussion of sharing the wealth is ludicrous. It is against this backdrop, a 15% corporate tax may be viewed as extreme. The average corporate tax rate, the effective tax rate, is about 9% as previously stated. If corporate America thinks the tax rate of 9% is too high, imagine paying a corporate tax rate in a country whose currency is stronger than the dollar. Do you think corporate America would pay the equivalent of a higher corporate tax rate converted to dollars? I don't think so. So clearly, the notion in terms of corporate, corporations paying their fair share, fair share simply won't happen, not under the current uh, conditions and the current realities. And I'll close with that, Brother Africa. Right, thank you, Brother Haki. Father and Brother Haki, you can go to Brother Moses. Brother Moses, welcome to Africa on the Moon. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Africa. <clears throat> and in the, spirit of, in the spirit of Occupy Wall Street, in the spirit of Unite the Many, Defeat the Few, I give greetings to everyone in the sound of my voice, especially the illustrious panelists. My name is Robert Andrew Moses. I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during a government class back in my high school year, 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there's one God, Jesus, 
who is the author and finisher of my faith, is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. And we don't reverse correct verdicts. I'm pro-choice, and I vote. And uh, I like to say the Equal Rights Amendment, ERA, yes, women hold up half the sky. And I thank you once again, Brother Apps, for allowing me to be on the show. Thank you, Brother Moses, Father and Brother Moses. Now I'm bringing Sister Shirley. Sister Shirley, what happened to Africa on the move? Thank you, Brother Africa. Um, I would uh, greetings to everybody uh, first of all, and uh, I would like to share with you just briefly about a uh, webinar that I was on earlier today, and it focused on uh, sanctions. Um, you, the United States has right now sanctions against uh, 39 countries throughout the world. And, of course, we spent a lot of time uh, during the webinar talking about particular sanctions in particular countries, and that included Iran, Syria, Nicaragua, Cuba, and uh, Venezuela. And, uh, of course, as we all know, the effects of the sanctions uh, are very devastating, and it's getting worse in all of these countries. And representatives uh, in these countries were on uh, on the seminar and reported that things were getting worse indeed. Um, And then somebody brought up... uh, the fact that they had done some research for a lecture that they were going to be giving. I believe this person that was making the remarks is from India. And he said that he got together with other people who have been wondering about foreign aid, Um, how much money has been spent on foreign aid by the West over the last 60 years. And the amount that they came up with was $6,000 billion. And, of course, the obvious question is, what, what has happened with this foreign aid? Where has it gone? Uh, what evil deeds were done in the name of providing uh, foreign aid? And it got me to thinking a lot about Haiti, which I've been working on for many, many years. And Haiti is a country, of course, that has more NGOs than any other country uh, probably on earth. And in the times during the earthquake, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars went to Haiti And, uh, of course, very few people on the ground got to see uh, any of that money. And that primarily went to these professional NGOs, I call them. And the money ended up actually coming back to the United States, to the headquarters of the NGOs. So... um, Anyway, we like I said, it was a it was an interesting uh, seminar um, to to listen to, but when you think of the needs and the extremely 
difficult uh, situations that people in countries that are under these heavy sanctions have been in, been put into. And a place like Haiti, which has been drowned with NGOs and money flowing through and and the people on the ground are not receiving anything. Anyone in any way, it was a powerful picture that I came away with uh, this morning and just wanted to share it with everybody. Thank you. Thank you, Sister Shirley. What we're going to do right now, before we go in that first segment, what's going on your world community? We're going to take a break. Um, usually, we'll share a cultural break, and when we come back, we're going to entertain what's going on in the world, in your world, in the community, and we'd like for you to call in and share with us what's going on in your world, in your community, by dialing 323-679-0841. We're not the last one number. So we're going to take a Love for your cultural break, and we'll be back. Africa, Mama, 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 Mama,
don't care where you come from As long as you're a black man You're an African No mind your nationality I've got the identity of an African Cause if you come from Britain And if you come from Britain Welcome back to Africa on the Move. No matter where you come from, as long as you're a black man, black woman, you're African. That's right. Don't you forget it. They can take the African out of Africa, but they can't take Africa out of Africa. We welcome you back to Africa on the Move on the 13th day of June 2021. Our theme tonight is Don't Be Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf. But we can show you how you do it on Africa and move. We not afraid of the big bad wolf. But before we discuss that theme tonight, we will start off with our first segment. And you are welcome to join us by dialing in at 323-679-0842 and share your views and your perspectives on what's going on in your world and the community. That's right. There are so many things going on in our world and our community. And before I go to my panelists and this for the day, I'd like to just to share a little brief moment in history as relates to the 13 days of June in year 1980 that Walter Rodney, who was a Pan-Avenue scholar and revolutionary activist, was murdered by reactionary neocolonial forces in 1980 on this day. So we want to take a few minutes and um, give our, our memories and our, our, our gratitude for people like Brother Walter Ratliff, who um, gave his life not only to advance his people, but to advance all the humanity. So that was a significant um, event that happened today. So at this point in time, you listen to Brother Africa on Africa on the Move. We're going to go to our political panelists and analysts, and they're going to share with you what's going on in our world and the communities. And we'll start off with Brother Haki. We're coming to you, Brother Haki. What's going on in your world and the community? Uh, you want a brief statement on Walter Rodney? It's level for you, that'll be fine, brother. Okay. Well let me let me uh, first let me just get through this uh this piece I wrote because the thing I'm concerned about we, we think about when we think about neoliberalism and we think about you know, <clears throat> as far as those in power are concerned the uselessness of so many of the people, the indifference to the suffering and their pain, uh, to equate uh, money to be in all of everything, uh, doesn't bode well for society as a whole. But nonetheless, you got people who position is that uh, they want to get as much as possible as quickly as possible. Even if that means sabotaging the economy, they're willing to do that simply because greed prevails. And so clearly this question turns from neo- neoliberalism creates tremendous problems for humanity, um, and so the fact that it exists and people suffer from it, uh, oftentimes people don't understand the nature of neoliberalism in terms of why they suffer. So hopefully this piece will make it clear in terms of uh, you know one of the reasons why uh, 
escape the impacts of neoliberalism uh, through the lens of um, under, the federal unemployment program in terms of what transferred what transpired in terms of that, pro, that program. Now, you know, recently, Brother Africa, the elimination of the federal unemployment benefits uh, program proposed, excuse me, the elimination of 20, uh, the federal unemployment benefits proposed by 25 Republican governors in 25 states is very perplexing. These government's positions flow from a rationale which places the decline of the economy squarely on the backs of the unemployed. Implying workers are too lazy and federal unemployment benefits reinforce that laziness is the worst kind of scapegoating. Content to avoid real discussion, the question of social limitations that facilitate and encourage unemployment are neatly avoided, and once again, poor people are demonized as inadequate or lacking moral character. Demonization of working, pe- working people is not new. In fact, neoliberalism demands the scapegoating of, work- of working people in order to conceal neoliberalism demands sizable reductions to the workforce. Profits, excessive profits, are best facilitated by having fewest workers as possible by elevating the, the workload of relatively few workers. This productivity gains, the ruthless exploitation of labor, not only ensures high profits, but the enhanced wealth of very wealthy people. From an employer's perspective, this formula has a certain resonance. Uh, the much broader problem evolves around revenues needed by both federal and state authorities. Now, the government's calculus involving providing unemployment benefits to states had nothing to do with morality. After all, this is a capitalist system. Their calculus had more to do with providing badly needed stimulus to the economy to offset, at least attempt to offset, declines in business activity brought on by closure of the economy and sanctions initiated by the U.S. government. The roughly 80 to $100 billion set aside for a fund to fund unemployment programs provide the funds state needed to prevent closure of major institutions like health, safety, and infrastructure. The multiplier effect, the benefits of money flowing through the economy, benefited local businesses in the states by an average of $1.61 for every dollar spent. Clearly, it benefited the state. So why would 25 states forego $12 billion in federal dollars already allocated for unemployment? Why are states willing to sacrifice 4 million workers who will lose their benefits while undermining claims to an additional 2 million workers? Equally as important, why would 25 states sabotage their own economies to benefit the, the few among the capitalist class who own businesses? The answer lies in the rejection of Keynesian economics which espouse citizens having access to money which will benefit the economy. Today's political economic elites, guided by neoliberalism, embracing the school of Chicago politics, rejects such philosophy thereby confirming the notion of every person for themselves. Their reason implies that 10 to 20% of the unemployed in the U.S. must solely pick themselves up by their bootstraps and earn a living. Ironically, no mention of how those without boots navigate structural poverty. From neoliberalism logic flows the idea of unemployment benefits are unemployment program, excuse me, unemployment benefit programs are contributing to laziness and workers and by eliminating the unemployment program, workers will be compelled to return return to, to work, both leisure and hospitality jobs. Since these jobs represent a minute percentage of jobs, why would they be important to the capitalists? One could speculate, perhaps, the psychological benefits of having others serve the wealthy has some appeal. In any event, the fundamental premise of needing to coerce workers back to work is patently false. On a national level, according to Andrew Stiller, there are only 8 million job openings or 16 million jobless workers in the U.S., Prior to the pandemic, the U.S. was short by 8 million jobs. Superimposed upon this statistic is a grim reality. Many businesses have closed and will not be coming back. The narrative put forth by politicians, <coughs> people do not want to, to work, is, is not only false, but the embodiment of propaganda. 
This propaganda motive is further revealed by contrast to the $600 benefit program that ended in 2020. At the conclusion of, of these benefits, unemployment remained unchanged. In other words, a $600 transfer payment did not affect employment at all. Those who had jobs was given the opportunity to continue to work. According to the University of Chicago study, it concluded that those who lost their jobs to the pandemic have been returned to work despite the $600 payment. This statistic in itself is very revealing on the importance of work for working people. Now, the attainment of unemployment benefits for African and Latin workers historically has been difficult for two reasons. First, both tend to live in states with very limited uh, time earning unemployment coverage with very low unemployment benefits. Secondly, nationally, Africans and Latin account for 40% of the unemployed but are only 20% of the recipients of unemployed benefits. In hindsight, we can conclude unemployment regimes throughout the U.S. have fallen woefully short of compensating African and Latin people. We simply can't conclude the expectation of unemployment benefits being a lifeline to working people can be dispelled. The very reason states set up unemployment programs durations short and low employment amounts is specifically to ensure a steady stream of low-paid labor. I would venture to guess, given this backdrop, millions of working people have, have been conditioned to not to expect government assistance. If this be the case, why would workers avoid working when they know government assistance is conditional, if at all, and cannot be relied upon? It is time for a real discussion on unemployment in the age of neoliberalism. Now, in terms of, in terms of Walter Rodney, uh, one of the things that Walter Rodney understood is that in terms of doing the people's work, uh, you're going to not only alienate those people who are of power, but you're also going to alienate the people who are the most, who are the most powerless. Uh, there's a certain amount of political condition that takes place in society in which the people who are most um, poo-pooed upon are the people who love society the most. Uh, it speaks to a kind of cognitive dissonance that exists in the mind of people in terms of their inability to adequately understand, you know, what is before them. But this conditioning process, this socialization process, as some call it, is very, very real, and it does, it does play a big part in terms of how people see the world. And if people really believe that this society is in their best interest and that this is the greatest society in the world, then certainly we can reason that they're going to defend it. So Walter Ryan understood that. And unfortunately, the people of those that extra element, you know, uh, in the society, uh, simply saw Rodney, uh, Walter Rodney as a threat, and so they they they, they do what all people do when they're threatened. They, they they assassinated him, but clearly Walter Rodney understood the risk in terms of trying to bring about a better day, and so Walter Rodney, like you know, all revolutionaries, uh, you know, understand the risk that involved in terms of trying to get people to understand the reality, but let's do so because of love of people. So Walter Rodney is certainly one of the greats, and uh, so when we talk about Pan-Africanism, we can't reasonably talk about Pan-Africanism without invoking the name of Walter Rodney. Thank you, Brother Haki. Well, next, we bring in Brother Moses. Brother Moses, what's going on in your world and the community? Brother Moses. Yes, thank you, Brother Africa. Um, well, this has been an interesting week. Um, I'm trying to think of what stands out. I mean, I've, I've heard so many different imp- facts, facts, uh, information, or whatever. Uh, so much has come across my my uh, consciousness, and uh, I'm trying to think of what stands out the most this week. Uh, certainly, you always, you always, uh, whether whether they're reported or not. Um, the the virus is still uh, critical in terms of humanity and hum- humanitarianism and and just a love for people. I mean, we should we should be trying to do everything we can to get that that everybody uh, uh, made a, a 
available a vaccine. And so that that's definitely number one. Uh, um, meanwhile, I don't know, they said Trump was talking about running for the House to try to become the Speaker of the House or something. Uh, um, that seemed to be appealing to him or something. I don't know. But I know we have to... We have to recognize who the who the enemies of the people are, and 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 definitely do what we can to make sure that they don't get their way, because their way is to crush us, to annihilate us, especially anything progressive, anything democratic, anything socialist, anything communist. That's what they're about crushing in words and in deeds. And so I'll leave it right there. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. Next from Brother Moses, we will go to Sister Shirley. Sister Shirley, what's going on in your world in the community? Well, Sister Shirley. The or- yeah, the, the organization that I belong to here in D.C., which is um, the uh, D.C. Metro Coalition in Solidarity with the Cuban Revolution, is having its first outdoor protest in D.C. coming up on June 20th, a week from today. And um, we're we're feeling very good about it because it's the first time many of us have been able to even get together and with also other organizations with, uh, with whom we join in solidarity on Cuba. And we're hoping for a very uh, good um, turnout. And it will be also our opportunity to interact with uh, people on the street and talk to them um, about Cuba. Our organization is also trying to figure out things that we can do to have a more regular contact with the public talking about Cuba. And I think we may try to do a series of meetings that we have maybe on a monthly basis that would be of a public nature. And we are just trying to increase awareness of uh, the importance of Cuba, what it represents, and the importance of the United States ending um, the blockade of Cuba. So we're, we're trying to, to go through those kinds of dis- discussions. But um, it's just been a, a little bit of hopefulness on our part that we were able to uh, put together a, um, a, uh, a picket for this coming Sunday and uh, get started on the path to public, publicly show our support for Cuba and to uh, let others know that the United States uh, uh, blockade is a cruel 60-year relentless uh, 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 genocide on the people of Cuba. So... Um, that's what we, we've been thinking about, and that's what's been in my world the last couple of days. 
Thank you, Sister Shirley. I believe we have Sister Eleanor who has joined us. Sister Eleanor, welcome to Africa on the Moon. What's going on in your world in the community, Sister Eleanor? Good evening, uh, panelists, Brother Africa, and all our listeners. Uh, this week has been a, a, an exciting week. I hope that as a globe, global community, we are beginning to uh, prepare and distribute uh, vaccines for everyone in every nation, everywhere. And I would also urge folks domestically to have themselves vaccinated, to think about not only uh, themselves, but think about their relatives, their families, their neighbors, that when you vaccinate yourself, when you wear a mask, when you wash your hands, when you maintain social distancing, that you are potentially saving someone else's life. So my concern this week has been uh, Cuba and uh, it receiving the syringes necessary to vaccinate its population as well as globalized uh, vaccination efforts. Um, the World Health Organization has been discussing it. Uh, apparently, the uh, the Big Seven had this week had been discussing it, and now it's time for action. And we need to vaccinate. And uh, I understand that there's a continuing uh, uh, a 30% uh, increase uh in uh, at least 12 countries on the continent of Africa and uh, as well as South American countries uh, and uh, some Central American countries. So I hope that we can begin to vaccinate everyone everywhere. And I'm glad to see that the world is beginning to look at misogynist behavior and the impact on women and children and in particular women and girls, children everywhere, but women and girls. And uh, it's about time. And we must all remember that education, housing, health care, and food are a basic human right. And the first mother, we need to begin taking care of immediately. She can't wait. Our life depends on it is planet Earth. So let's everyone work at reducing our carbon footprint. Every little bit helps. And together, we can make a difference. Thank you. Thank you, Sister Eleanor. Uh, panelists, uh, for a little while, we're going to just have a, maybe an open discussion on some of the things. We have just shared with our listening audience. But um, I'm trying to think of this concept they've been putting out in the media recently, uh, dealing with how uh, African intellectuals have identified this whole question of how they have critiqued the West as it relates to looking at this whole question of um, uh, oppression, racism, discrimination, etc. And they are now attacking the methodology in terms of saying that, you know, trying to discredit it. I'm trying to think maybe the concept of hacky. Can you help me along? We just had a discussion the other day. Um, and that's like you used a piece on a couple of weeks back. Uh, 
Um, what's the name of the concept? Mm, the theory. Uh, the boy Bayer, Professor Bayer, a lot, a lot of times alluded to getting him credit for being one of the um, architects of this particular concept. That's what he did try to disprove about how history has been analyzed, you know, from the perspective of the press. Oh, what is the name of the concept? Okay, since we can't think of the name of the concept for right now, what I want to do at this point in time is just leave this open to anything that may have been shared with our listening audience. Are there any additional things people like to say before we move on to our next section? Yes. We're talking about the Africa. Yeah, is it open to the panelists? Open to the panelists. I was trying to remember that. Okay. It's critical race theory. I was trying to remember that. Yes, go ahead, Hacky. It's critical race theory, Brother Africa. Yeah, the critical race theory. I can't remember the same word. But but, but, you know, in terms of critical race, in in, in terms of critical race theory, let's let's be very objective about, you know, is is evolution. The Frankfurt School uh, in Germany played a big role in terms of critical theory. So the notion that institutions adversely impact society is one of the things that Frankfurt School put forward. And so from the Frankfurt School, we had critical race theories in which we talked specifically about the kind of role institutions, particularly racial institutions, play in terms of stimulating justice in society. So when we talk about, so when, when those positions of power seek to dis- dismiss or undermine critical race theory, they do so because they realize that the biggest weapon uh, uh, that, that we can foment as, 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 as evolutionaries is to get people to conscientious, to get people to actually start thinking about things. The moment people start thinking about things, they gain that kind of clarity in terms of how society is organized, how it operates. Then it's a question of times in terms of their involvement in terms of trying to bring out about a different paradigm. So those people in position of power are attacking the critical history throughout the world, not just in America, but throughout the world. Which begs the question, what role does the CIA play in terms of facilitating this whole question in terms of attacking critical race theories? Because the underlying notion in terms of attacking critical race theory has to do with, has to do with the notion that critical race theory is fundamentally uh, attack against white people. And that's how a critical race theory is. They understand that. But as long as they can muddy the waters and confuse people, then that's fine for them. Because what is important to them is to divide you know, white people from African people, from Latin people, from Asian people, and so forth and so on. So clearly, critical race theory is, is, a, is a real threat to those issues of power because it provides clarity in terms of the institutions, in, in terms of how they how they work. So when we talk about the fundamental uh, uh, disparity between those who have and don't have a society, the question becomes: Why does in the society as rich as America, why do you fundamentally have these kind of disparities that exist in the society? In America, in a, situ- in a situation where you have quantitative easing, we have the central banks constantly creating billions and billions and billions of dollars. Under, the, under that scenario, why would you have anybody who's poor in America? Simply because you can create the currency, you can create the money, so that's not a problem. So nobody in America should be poor. So critical race theory sort of helps people to understand the, the roots in terms of this kind of uh, this kind of thinking, this kind of disparity that exists, uh, um, uh, that, that uh, the kind of disparity that exists among society, particularly as it relates to people positions of power and how they relate or don't relate to people who are poor or people who are, who are marginalized. So critical race theory constitutes a real threat for those in positions of power, and we've got to be very clear on why they're attacking critical race theory, not just in America, but throughout the world. Anyone else would like to add to that issue of your understanding of the critical race theory? Mm-hmm. 
Because Brother Hackey, as I said to you earlier, I just, you know, sort of, yes, someone has something to say. As I was saying um, earlier, I thought, I thought it was really interesting in terms of if you follow the press and the media as they try to critique and create, make an issue out of no issue, they really have no, um, they really have no gripes. I don't know. I've I, I never could figure out no more to try to create um, confusion and what is that right or that criticism of this methodology of how they have you and look at history and look at how they have dealt with this question of oppression and race. So I was just, you know, wanting somebody add, had something to add to that because, you know, I just, I, I just found it amazing. So again, to me, it seems to be part of this narrative of, you know, if you're not in power, you don't have, they don't want to give you the ability and the means to define what is for you to frame what you want things to be. Like Alice in Wonderland, you have the ability to define what is and you define how you do things. I saw that more as, you know, one of the things you're trying to undermine when they, you know, talk about attacking your critical race theory. But I just thought that was interesting. People need to maybe take a note. And and be aware of you know this ongoing you know, dynamic of how they try to you know undermine um, the methodology and that kind of that, that kind of thing in the concept. Well, they, they they have, anyone else? Yes, they don't have a problem with attendance of critical race theory. They understand precisely what people are saying. They understand the relationship between institutions and how people are treated. They understand that. They understand the historical is, uh, relationship between. Uh, 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 institutions and formulating weights in society. They understand all of that, Brother Africa. That's not what they're doing. What they're doing is that they want to muddy the waters. They want people to think that to talk about critical race theory is to be somehow um, uh, judgmental or in, in, indicting, you know, white, white people. So they want, so they want to fundamentally impose a division between white people and African and Asian people or, or Latin people, for that matter. So that's what the whole motivation is. It has something to do. They never attack the attendance of critical race theory. They never say critical race theory is, is wrong based upon A, B, and C. They simply, they simply say that, well, to teach it is simply fundamentally wrong because it tends to divide people. It doesn't divide people. What it does is provide clarity. And what they fear is that increasingly as more and more white people, particularly younger white people, come to the realization that something is fundamentally skewed in terms of society, they come to the realization that understanding the history gives them a lot of understanding in terms of why things exist the way they currently exist. And in understanding that, they begin to understand that treating people a certain way based upon skin color is so different than the fundamental treatment they receive as a poor white person or poor Asian person or poor Latin person. So that is the fear. So it has nothing to do with their confusion in terms of what critical race theory is. They understand precisely what it is. So keep in mind, when they talk about critical races, they're always equated to, 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 they're always equated to, 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 to Nazism. Very interesting, very interesting analysis. I mean, I don't know how you can equate something that's a fundamentally positive, something that attempts to bring, bring people together on a, a unifying uh, uh, understanding of history to something that's divisive, something that's designed to eliminate and destroy based upon ethnicity or, or, or religion. So clearly, they'll say anything. It, it, it doesn't matter. See, the reason why they won't talk about critical race theory in terms of its Frankfurt roots, because once you talk about the Frankfurt School of Philosophy, then clearly, you know, they lay out in terms of the real problems in terms of institutions, in terms of how they facilitate kind of injustice, how institutions facilitate uh, 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 police brutality, how institutions facilitate poverty, how institutions facilitate situations where children don't learn in school. So once you understand how institutions function and how they facilitate all these problems, you know, people, people come to that realization that what's going on 
then inevitably what happens is they, they stand up. Now, one last thing about the Africa. Keep in mind, remember back in the time, back in the day when they had programs like Phil Donahue on, which geared toward uh, educating people. Why do you think they got rid of Gil, Gil, Phil Donahue? Phil Donahue uh, made a lot of money for the networks. They got rid of Phil Donahue because they understood that the kind of information that Phil Donahue was presenting to the masses of people was enlightening. The more people come enlightened, the more they begin to understand structurally how the system is designed, structurally what the system does, how it disadvantages, how it cripples, how it humiliates, how it demeans, how it makes, how you make, how it makes people suffer. Once people come to the realization of those things, then they fundamentally understand that things got to change. And so people in power got a vested interest in making sure people do not come to the realization in terms of the fundamental structures, uh, 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 the injustice that the structures facilitate, because they're not interested to do so. So clearly, they understand precisely what critical race theory is. So when they run that nonsense about critical race theory somehow being uh, akin to Nazism, understand they will say anything and everything to keep people away from the reality in terms of what critical race theory is really all about. And on that note, what we're going to do, we're going to um, pause for the calls. We're going to play some music with a rubber message, as well as we're going to take a look at history from the past and how our parents respond to it, and then we'll follow up with our theme today. Don't be bad, don't be afraid of the big bad wolf. You're listening, to Brother Africa or Africa on the Moon. Don't you go nowhere. We'll be right back. Brother in chains, living in pain, today is the same, and nothing ever changes. Hung by a noose, can't tell the truth, filled with abuse, and everywhere there's danger. How long can this go on? When will the light I see? I know I must be strong to last through my journey. Yes, yeah. last through my journey. To get off the ride and stop going through these changes. We must prepare and learn how to care, but soon we'll be there while our lives won't be in danger. And when the light is clear, oh, how beautiful I will be to know that I've been. And made it through my journey, yeah, and made it through my journey, yeah, 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 made it through my journey, made it through my journey. Made it through my journey. Hello, Reno. A bloodline across the waters. From Benin to Salvador Bahia, a scar across the face of the earth. Pellerino, the place they brought the Africans, the place where they tried to make them slaves. Pellerino, you can feel the whip 
Hear the cries and see the blood in the red clay. The clay that holds the stones together is African. And each stone is a bone from a people called slaves. Pellerino was the place where death came to dwell. His neighbors did not complain, for he was a way out. From the cold, gray, cobblestone streets to the lifeless cathedrals, tall walls of demons called angels, haunted visions of white faces crucifying Jesus again and again. But in the sacrifice of this blood, of this dance with death, comes life more rich, more pure, more alive, where death spent many lonely nights pacing the floors of his funeral parlor, waiting for someone to die. Pellerino, a French word called the place of torture, became a place of strength, a place where faces of white saints became faces of black gods, where haunted visions and demons became healing visionaries and orishas from the motherland. And Jesus rejoined his kinfolk and was reborn and baptized in the sound of sensual skin turned up to dance, to inspire a fire like the sun, pronouncing his presence. Pellerino was the tongue of the flame, licking the eyes of those who have tried to remain blind, shining a light on a spirit that would not be denied. No, the chains did not break the spirit, did not enslave the music of my soul, did not shackle the will of my freedom, did not tarnish the glow of my gold, and all the Pellerinos in Africa, in Europe, in North and South America cannot destroy the majesty of my people, the love of my people, shining like the sun everywhere we go, everywhere we go. When the light is clear, oh, how beautiful I will be. Journey, yeah, and made it through my journey, yeah, 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 yeah. If you think of the Middle East in this modern time you can't help but say the word palestine people there have lost their land some have lost their home they live in other countries their freedom almost gone palestine Palestine. needs her freedom freedom. Palestine. palestine Needs our love, needs our love, Palestine. Needs her freedom, Palestine. Needs our love. There seems to be no answer to give us the reason why. People cannot live, so no one has to die. We've got to take a stand for freedom, 
Take a stand for truth. Take a stand for justice. That's what we've got to do. Cause Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Needs Palestine, Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. forces arrayed against us are, and I use the word most carefully, formidable. They are intense and powerful. They are, as I have taken some pains to explain, the forces of imperialism acting through their instruments, new colonialism and colonialism, ably assisted by the agents of the Cold War. They operate in worldwide combinations at all levels, political, economic, military, cultural, educational, social, and trade. And not all, and through intelligence, cultural, and information services. They operate from European and African centers, using agents who I'm ashamed to say, are often on patriotic sons of Africa, buying personal satisfactions with the betrayal of their country's safety and integrity. They seduce leaders. They seduce leaders of the African political, trade union, and people's organization, thus creating rifts and quarrels within the national front. On the broader front, they are amassing their forces in a determined effort to stay the advance of African liberation and the march of unity. It is not accidental that the countries of the European common market and those spearheading the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, the imperialist powers who have brought in their vassals, Spain and Portugal. Portugal, in fact, in the wars of the Spanish succession, 1700 to 1714, being a protector of Britain, which has enjoyed special trading and unnecessary rights in both Portugal and in the Portuguese territories for over 200 years. It is not difficult to understand, therefore, why Britain has not raised her voice against the atrocities in Angola and other protected Portuguese territories and actually supported Portugal's preposterous scheme at Goa in India was an integral part of the metropolitan country. The arms and troops that are pouring into Angola cannot be regarded in isolation from the international organization of imperialism and the Cold War militarism with which they are most definitely linked. It is absurd to think that Portugal, one of the poorest countries in Europe,
fact, could support so large an army, so well equipped, as that which is defending her colonial possession in Africa, without the active aid she must be receiving from the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Nor can we look upon the way in which South Africa is busily building up an armed force equal to any held by the nations of Europe without sending the international implications that are obviously involved. She has, we hear, a secret military pact with Portugal. And the interlocking imperialist interest collected in the Congo and the Rhodesians, Angola and Mozambique, which are also linked with the great mining and financial interests operating in South Africa, create a chain of allies which seriously threatens both the fight for extending African emancipation from colonialism and independence of the new African state. Now, that African independence has been achieved over a large part of the continent and the national consciousness of Africans from north to south, from east to west, is adding momentum to the struggle for independence. Every kind of means is being used by the colonialists to arrest its progress and defeat its objective. They are attempting many methods, some sinister, some beguiling, to wreck our efforts. They strike antipathetic postures. On one side, they perform acts calculated to strike fear. On the other, they try to do hoodwink us with fictitious gifts which superficially pander to our hopes and aspirations. They are the present attempts to deflect our purpose, to weaken our determination. We'd like to welcome you back to Africa on the Moon. We were doing a reflection of history. You listened to Kwame Nkrumah back on early 57, early 60s, as he was speaking to his people in the world, as he talked about the forces that was against Africa then. And we just going to have a little bit of dialogue um, for a few minutes on some of the lessons that we should have learned from his particular um, experiences. When you talk about the, when you talk about um, uh, this whole question of U.S. imperialism, you talk about this NATO, you talk about European Union. Um, this was back in 57, 58, when Africa was um, in the midst of many of its countries achieving their political independence. Now, just for the argument of some reflections from our panelists, when he talked about these forces and looking at the whole attitude that even back then, these same forces, the colonialist and, and neo-colonialist forces, they seem to be determined to not to allow Africa to have its, 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 its sovereignty, its independence, its total freedom. Um, what do you make of the lessons that Krumah spoke of in this presentation during this, um, you know, late 50s, early 60s, 
What do you make of these lessons that he spoke about that has anything changed you daily as it relates to Africa trying to free itself independently and economically from the various um, imperialist forces, politically and economically? Shout out with you, Brother Haki, your response to the lessons that Nkuma left for us then and how different are they today? Your perspective, let me hear your perspective, Brother Haki. Yeah, well, Nkuma's perspective is still pretty much germane today. Nothing has changed. In fact, the problems confronting Africa actually um, intensified. Uh, one of the problems is that, you know, you know, Africa went through the colonial struggles, but the new colonial struggles uh poses a different, a different challenge for Africa. And, of course, Western nations are hell been determined to make sure that uh, the correct kind of leadership, uh, uh, the more uh, potent, the more leadership in Africa never rises to the surface. In fact, one of the biggest, uh, one of the, one of the biggest uh, trades, trade, in fact, to the extent trades exist in Africa, has to do with technology geared towards spying. Uh, one of the things the West understands is that if, you know, uh, Africa must understand that it's inevitable that somebody's going to rise to lead the masses forward to a new paradigm. And so, therefore, they, they provide Africa with all kinds of uh, um, uh, uh, technology, specifically to spy on this population, because they want to be able to identify precisely who among the population is motivated to actually uh, to step up, to actually to, 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 to fight the system, to, to inform people in terms of the plight of Africa and what must we do to overcome the subject, subjugation of Africa. Now, historically, Brother Africa, I think it's important to understand that, you know, when we talk about um, the, 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 the evolution of the West, one thing we had to be very clear on, that when we talk about in 1944, we talk about the Bretton Woods Conference, that conference of 44, 44 states, uh, most of the Western states, uh, where they did have three African states uh, involved in that conference, um, uh, Ethiopia, Egypt, and uh, apartheid South Africa. But essentially, though, that, that formation, that Bretton Woods Conference, uh, they were very clear that Africa would play no role in terms of the global economy. They made that point very, very clear. Africa would to be a, simply a colony uh, which they can, uh, people can get the resources they need in terms of for their advancement. So that point is very, very clear. And so what Kwame, what Kwame uh, and Kuma were saying is that when he talked about this attacks against him and others who were simply to form in, uh, you know, pan-Africanism at the time, Africa was in transition. Uh, he's absolutely correct, and that, that phenomenon turns out that the attack against Africa hasn't gone anywhere. As I said before, it has actually intensified. And here's the thing, I, one thing I'm, I don't want to be long-winded, I know you just surely got a lot to say about this, but, but the whole point is that we have to understand uh, that when we talk about, uh, you know, when we talk about you know, these fin- international uh, financial organizations like the IMF or the World Bank, we have to understand, you know, they're uh, they're their, 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 their bylaws essentially are one of you know microeconomics. In other words, their thing is not the local economies of Africa. That's not their concern. Their concern is how can African resources stimulate the economies of the West. And so we have to understand that. So, when, so whenever you talk about any kind of agreement that they come across supposedly to help Africa, it's always in the context of microeconomics. And so the question becomes, you know, uh, you know do African leaders not understand? that what they're doing has nothing to do in terms of the improvement of African economy or African infrastructure? Uh, well, they do. They do. Uh, You've got a tremendous amount of classes that exist in Africa, uh, you know, and so you've got those individuals who are willing, you know, to um, push forward, you know, Western interests, uh, despite the kind of poverty, kind of desperation that ensues uh, in, in Africa. 
So clearly, uh, this is a question in terms of class is a, is a very germane question, and we have to understand that, in fact, uh, that is that's one of the issues in terms of holding Africa back. Uh, to, 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 to the small measure, of course, Western nations do a very good job in terms of actually assassinating Africans who are conscientious, those Africans who, who are conscious, those Africans who understand precisely what the situation is and why, much Africa, why Africa must adopt, unify, and, and create a new, new paradigm. And also, and, and last time I'm to say, Brother Africa, I think it's important also to understand, you know, that, um, you know, interestingly enough, you know, um, you know, when you, when you talk about, you know, the IMF specifically, you know, and as it relates to Africa, you know, one of the things is that it, you know, it's, it's, it's in Trinidadianism. It exists in a way in which, you know, Africa is fundamentally uh, disempowered in terms of actually being able to do anything. In fact, the voting rights, the things that go on with respect to the International Monetary Fund is determined by the amount of money that you have in your reserves. And, of course, a country like America has the most reserves in IMF, so as a consequence, it controls essentially, you know, who gets, who gets what in terms of investments when it comes to IMF funds. Uh, Africa is at a disadvantage, and nothing's going to change that. In fact, on one of the real ironies that when we talk about the International Monetary Fund, they, they use a term called usable, usable currencies. And actually what they're saying is that only Western currencies have been value. Despite the fact that all the resources are coming from Africa, uh, they're saying that, uh, you know, they're saying that only, the only cur- currencies of any value are Western currencies. African currencies don't have any value whatsoever. Unless African value, uh, currencies are tied to Western currencies, they have no value. So for Africa, it's important in terms of currency reserves. So Africa is constantly trying to seek ways in terms of getting, you know, foreign reserves into its coffers, you know, dollars, pounds, uh, um, uh, francs, and so forth. Uh, you know, so clearly, you know, Africa is a real disadvantage, and nothing's going to fundamentally change. Africa has to, African leaders have to understand that you know the, the, the fundamental reality is that with the uh, with, with with all these troops moving into Africa, they're not there because they give a damn about Africa. They're there because they want to create a scenario, create a narrative to ensure that those resources continue to flow to the West at a relatively cheap or no price or, or no cost at all. And so, African leaders got to come to the realization that you know without an organized Africa, uh, without a, a, a unified Africa bank, without setting commodity prices, Africa is doomed to remain impoverished from here to eternity. So clearly. Uh, African leaders have to step up to the plate. Okay, so for Shirley, I understand you have something to say on this matter. We're going to give you this opportunity, so Shirley, what is it that you'd like to um, address as it relates to the sole lesson from history as we listened to Brother Kwame uh, Nkrumah when he spoke about the forces against Africa and um how do you view what he stated, stated in back in the late 50s, the 60s, and how does this particular phenomenon uh, work itself out today as we look at African and oppressed people around the world and look at the forces that are dominating them? What's your take on this, Sister Shirley? Well, <clears throat> Kwame Nkrumah was a, a, a visionary and very precise in describing the lay of the land and um, being very truthful about the fact that all the forces would be working against Africa and Africans to prevent progress for them. And um, and it, it's a cautionary tale that that he was telling, and it was a warning he was putting out. 
this is this is not like our brief discussion uh, earlier about uh, Walter Rodney and uh, the, the his book um, how Europe underdeveloped Africa. These are all tales that reveal the truth and publicize the truth as to nothing's going to happen good for Africa by international organizations coming in with their goals, which are for only for themselves to to uh, to through their greed to acquire whatever they can get out of Africa and leave the rest in tatters wherever they go. And um, as you hear Kwame Nkrumah speak, uh, you cannot help be convinced that when he was saying this in the late 1950s, that, that if you you would have to know that it would all come to pass, and it has, to a T. And that is why that Fidel's famous statement, and this was in reference to Angola, but he said, we go, we fight, and when we leave, all we take with us is the dead bodies of our soldiers. And that was to emphasize that that we are there to help and we are not there to take. And uh, as for the, uh, the IMF, this 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 is uh this is an organization with uh completely uh evil uh goals uh operating procedures that um rest the the lifeblood uh through its system of keeping countries in debt um and uh Again, uh, Kwame Nkrumah uh, was a brilliant person, an incredible visionary, and we're lucky that we got at least to hear his uh, presentation of what was to come and how far he saw it coming. Thank you, Brother. Brother Moses, you know, when we look at his speech, one of the things that's come to my mind, Brother Moses, is that these actual forces basically seeking to make Africa to be um, dependent, dependent on them, keep them in a state of dependency. What's your thoughts? Listen to the message uh, from Brother Nkrumah, Brother Moses. Um, uh, yeah, um, I, uh, first of all, um, um, it's about it's my um, deficit, I guess, in terms of hearing, et cetera. But I, I had a hard time understanding um, the, 
the the words as they were coming out. And so, but I do know, you know, a little bit about um, his 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 stance in terms of the international Pan African movement, etc. But uh, I won't I won't comment at this time because I didn't I didn't on the specific thing we're talking about now. I'm I'm a little ignorant, so I'll leave it right there. Thank you. All right, thank you, brother. Brother, sister, how doing? You've been listening. Give me your thoughts on the reactionary forces, the evil forces that Kuma talk about in the, early, in the late fifties and sixties. As relates to African interests and how does this play out today from your perspective? Well, um, I had difficulty also hearing the brother, hearing that component of the program. And I'd like to also apologize if I can. You were asking a question earlier, and I wanted to ask the question of the audience concerning Oh, well, let me just answer your question first. I, I believe that the very conditions, it, it sounded as if he was discussing Africa of the 21st century, the economic, social, polemic of Africa in the 21st century. It's hard to believe this was the late 50s and early 60s. Now, I understand with the Marshall Plan, it was an underdevelopment of Africa to, to rebuild Europe after World War II. But I think nothing has changed and I and it's amazing. I understand that, for example, a mineral that we need in our cell phones comes from the Congo. Well, this should be one of the richest nations on the world. In the world, I don't even know the name of the mineral. But how do your mineral resources become so devalued? So there needs to be a reassessment of. Um, how we handle minerals, how African nations handle, as Brother King said, their commodities, their minerals, whether it's whether it's sugarcane or diamonds, it's got to be reassessed in how it's handled and how the uh, uh, merchandising of these resources is handled. Right now, it sounds as if we're still dealing with this uh, neo-colonialist environment. Uh, it, it doesn't sound to me, and I'm probably ignorant on the subject, that much has changed. Thank you. Hey, Suzanne, you said you had a question or something you want to respond to earlier. Um, you know, you got yeah, I'm sorry. Time to do so. In, in go ahead. You were talking, in the beginning, you were talking about what was the racism that the, that critical the race theory? Critical race theory. Yeah, uh-huh. someone, please give me the definition of critical race theory. <laughs> Let me see if I can do a better job right here. How can I give you first shot in, and then I may add to it if I can? Would you like to address that? Should we talk to? The definition we talk to do, we're talking about a concept. It's essentially a concept. All, all it's talking about is the impact institutions have on society. In particular, we talk about the racial dynamics of existing society and the role that institutions play in terms of facilitating those divisions. That's all critical race theory is. Critical race theory. So we're talking about systemic racism, for example, in the United States. Right. 
but not just U.S., throughout the world. Throughout the world, yes. And it's called Critical Race. Sure, I'll begin to research this this week and hope our listeners do as well so that we'll have a better understanding of well, this because... Well, I, I, I also think, Sister Eleanor, there are some assumptions dealing to the analysis of the critical race theory that you will need to take a look at and see if you agree with your assumptions of that and if they are valid. And I think, for me, that type of methodology is, is, is one of the things they, they're trying to find a way to delegitimize it, you know. For example, you know, they don't want to recognize the value and role the institution plays. They told how recent institutions have played in this capitalist development of um, creating many of the problems that we have today. You know, they don't want to recognize the have been this whole question when you look at this question of poverty. It's not something that people is born. It's something created based on a certain class of, of people and their power and how it is. You know, um, dealt with in society. So there are some things, you know, I think when you talk about it, you may want to take a look at it and, and say, is this valid, not valid, and to critique the development, the whole development of Western Western society, in my, in, from my um, point of view. So, anyway, that's not too similar, but I would encourage everyone to take a look at it and come back and we can continue to discuss it. Okay? Thank you. I will. All right, we now have Brother Anthony, who's been waiting patiently with us. Brother Anthony, we're talking about um, lessons from the past, from history. And one of the lessons we're talking about is the lesson that Brother Kwame Nkrumah left with us, or Sekou Kwame Nkrumah, where he stated about the reactionary forces, the forces against Africa, back in the late 50s and early 60s. And our question was, Looking at the message he left in terms of um, the, 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 the phenomenon that Africa found itself in during the early, the late 50s and 60s today, and looking at the, the reality of Africa, African people today, um, was he on point in some of the issues that he raised about when you talk about the role of NATO, when you talk about uh, European markets, when you talk about U.S. imperialism? Not only are they forces against Africa, but these are the same forces that we all have to deal with today as we talk about this question of freeing itself as a people. But your response to just that particular narrative, Brother Anthony? I think he was accurate. And I think it's even more true today than it was when he when, when, when he made that presentation. And bear in mind, that uh, that neocolonialism was a new phenomenon in Africa. Uh, Africa was just emerging out of uh, classic uh, colonialism, and uh, and uh, and uh, and uh, it got neocolonialism instead of genuine independence, which Nkrumah uh, warned would happen if they did not pursue political unification. Neocolonialism was perfected by the U.S. in Central, South America, and the Caribbean before it was brought to Africa, in which other Europeans uh, started using it and perfecting it. And the only, and the only solution to this problem 
of neocolonialism is political unification. All the various, uh, you know, military formations or or banking, uh, uh, you know, that need to be realized can only be be accomplished through the political unification of Africa. And if the current leadership in Africa is not working uh, to, uh, you know, to accomplish that, then that leadership needs to be changed by the masses of organized people and in whom are the ultimate makers of history. And uh, and it's very important that people understand this. That what that uh, that 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 going about uh, piecemeal, uh, you know, uh, you know, schemes with imperialist forces will not get Africa anywhere. And it's only through political unification that Pan Africanism. Which can, which alone can defeat imperialism, can be realized. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Right now, I'm going to take a quick break, and we'll come back. We're going to entertain today's theme, which is "Don't be afraid of the big bad wolf." That's right. Don't be afraid of the big bad wolf. We'd like for you to join us. I call them three two three six seven nine zero eight four one. We'll start off with a really interesting article. Uh, if you haven't read it, you should read it. You should go to um, this week, May the 31st, 2021, to Ghana, New, Ghana News. And they have an article titled, Washington is to take over Africa. Oh, really? Who says so? We'll be back to discuss that and more. This is Africa on the Moon. You listen to Brother Africa. We'll be right back. Passport Rev. Malcolm on Twitter featuring Napoleon Dumb Legend. What if Martin had Twitter and all that civil rights talk, man, I wouldn't want to hear it. This integration been disintegrating. Better off in our own ghettos with our own situation. His last speech got him assassinated. Black business was booming. It wasn't just a consumer. Controlling our narrative. We have more marriages. And see what the damage did. They ain't that bad a bitch. And welfare did its way worse than the slavery. I'll never be an agent. I don't care what they paying me. Seemed like Nip had the same old story. If we pay a black hater, tell a different allegory. Like Pearl Harbor and 9-11 was the mystery. Supremacy will go the extent to keep their history alive. All I'm saying, if these leaders was alive, who be on the internet trying to divide? If you's a hotel hustler, trying to be a people of that low vibe structure. Agree to disagree and we ain't got to tear our own down. Argue in silence or forever be our own down. All I want to say is that we're giving it away. Soul ain't for sale and the devil is a fate. Argue with the silence, but don't let it steal our faith. Hide behind doors, but don't ever show our face. Cause if mom had Twitter, Malcolm had Twitter. Be our own people do the trolling. Just be on ignorance and do the scolding. Where we going? Cause if mom had Twitter, then Malcolm had Twitter. It be our own people do the trolling. 
Spewing ignorance through the scolding. Where we go? Sometimes the key to life you looking for be right in front of you. Tried to show my man hidden colors, he said nothing new. I said, what if we've been lied to most of our freaking lives? Every year coming tonight, and you ain't speaking right, your arrogance precedes you. What if your faith did? I spoke to God on Wednesday, he said most of it's basic. Million dollar mindset to be flying, stay hungry. Hieroglyphic writing on walls you couldn't take from me. A man laid dead in the street today. I must have bumped my head and landed in. 1940 or something, I swear And all I have is love and joy to give I need to spread my wings I need to fly away I want to get high today Who got five on my little bundle of temporary Man, I want to live long enough to be legendary Your statistics said by now that I'm going to be dead and buried But when I heard your voice, it seems as if we met already And I march for our rights, that civil, the same purpose Two different tribes and we fighting the same person Could it be that our eyes was deceiving us? We had to have faith when nobody believed in us Cosmic companionship sustained me after my husband was assassinated And gave me the strength to make my contribution to carrying forward his unfinished work A man laid dead in the street today I must have bumped my head Marcus Gatwood comes to town Marcus Gatwood comes to town Can't get no food to eat
Welcome back to Left Go to Move. It's my brother Malcolm, the weapon. We're saying we just try to be revolutionaries. That's all. We welcome you back to Africa on the Move. As we make our transition to the third and final section of today's program, don't be afraid of the big bad wolf. We'd like to um, direct your attention to a recent article that was written January 20th, uh, 2021. Came from the Ghana News, titled "Washington Is to Take Over." Um, when I first saw the title, I was just wondering to myself, "Who is this talking about just going to take over Africa?" Again, the article is "Washington Is to Take Over Africa." So I believe this thought to my panelists. I'd like them to respond to this article. But my first question is um, to my panelists and today, who is this? This this entity, this 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 force of watching, talking about it's just gonna come and take over Africa. Um, brother Haki, start with you. Um, what's up with this? What's up with this? Well, let's 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 be very let's be very, very clear. When when we when we when we talk about neoliberalism, essentially what we're talking about what we're talking about is the, the decline of imperialism. And so and what that means Fundamentally, is um, what we're saying is that imperialism is bankrupt, and so therefore, being bankrupt, it has to revitalize itself. In order to revitalize, it needs access to resources. Where on the planet can you get resources that you need? Particularly, what Sister Eleanor talks about uh, the the kind of cobalt or, or coal train that you need in terms of you know computers and tel- cell phones. It's only that's the, the place that you get that from is, is, is the Congo, and so therefore, the West, the Washington D.C. in particular understands the necessity in terms of having access, you know, to those, to those resources. Uh, also, we keep in mind, when we talk about the huge um, 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 uh, the, uh, um, numbers of troops on the African continent, they're talking about a military project that's going to last in excess of 20 to 25 years in terms of building military uh, installations in Africa. So clearly what they're saying is that, you know, Africa is going to be ours. That's essentially what they're saying. Uh, and one of the things is that you know I find very very problematic is because they're setting shop setting up shop there in Africa. I just wonder do African leaders understand by allowing them to set up shop in Africa? Do you think that somehow at some point you can simply ask them to leave and they're going to say okay I'll leave? I don't think so. I mean their 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 focus is clearly to uh, to um, uh, have access to those resources and by having a military uh, presence on on the uh, on the continent that's precisely what they're doing. Uh, so, in event, Brother Africa, I'm going to I'm going to close with that because um, I know other people want to chime in because I don't want to keep talking. But um, you know, Brother Anthony's just coming on, and Sister Shirley and Sister Eleanor and Brother Robert probably have a lot to say about this. Oh, then, no, Brother Anthony, what do you have to say about this whole statement about Washington to take over Africa? When you read this article. Uh, what conjured up in your mind in terms of uh, the arrogance, the arrogance of, of of this so-called entity called Washington to say it's going to come and take Africa over? What do you take from this article, Brother Anthony? Uh, what I, my and what's the, and what's the implication to African people globally? The implications aren't good, but... Uh, I think there's a key, uh, a key assumption that's made in this article that 
that Africa, that Africa and African people are going are going to, are going to remain the way they are, and just allow this sort of takeover to take place. And uh, and uh, people that understand African people and African culture know that. Uh, remember Kwame Ture's lesson that where there's oppression, there's resistance, and that and that is a human law. And uh, and, and the thing about it, though, we have a number of people. Uh, you know, uh, to, to draw lessons from in terms of perseverance, such as the Irish in Europe and uh, the Palestinians in occupied uh, Palestine. And uh, so, um, you know, um, I think, uh, you know, if those forces that are working to achieve Pan-Africanism do their work, People will organize to resist uh, this uh, imperialist invasion. And uh, he, he talks a great deal about the ruling, uh, the ruling corporations, uh, such as uh, you know the Bushes and the Clintons, et cetera. But I think that's the keyhole in that argument. Thank you, Brother Edgar. Susan Eleanor, Washington D. going to take over who? What you what you take from this article, Sister Eleanor? Well, I, I found it quite interesting. And uh, uh, the meeting in Mozambique in 2020 um, went on under our noses, and uh, many of us, I have, I hadn't heard of it until this article. What I find interesting is right now, both China and the U.S., China is building roads and power plants that they can control passively uh, through their computer networks. And uh, the U.S. thinks they're going to have some type of business venture and they're still using the old players such as Exxon and Chevron and these people. Apparently, they haven't heard the news that if we're going to save all of us, we're going to start by saving, vaccinating and by saving Mother Earth. So we're going to need to change our carbon footprint. So it's not going to be oil that we're using. It's not going to be coal that we're using. We're going to be using alternative energy sources and some that probably haven't even been invented yet. And I almost am biting my tongue because I was an anti-nuclear person of the 70s because of the difficulty in eliminating nuclear waste. But right now, a way of limiting that carbon footprint, but we need more solar, more geothermal, more uh, wind, uh, other alternatives, more recycling. And so this paradigm, if they're talking about American corporations investing in Africa, I think they're going to be quite surprised because uh, Africa is waking up and this neo-colonialist mentality is going to be something behind not going forward. 
And in doing so, we're going to see Africa, for lack of a better term, re-merchandising itself, re-examining itself and its value, especially as we begin to see more and more climate changes that we're seeing now in the Northern Hemisphere. Africa and South America are going to be the prime real estate. So um, it's going to make Manhattan, uh, the prices of Manhattan real estate look like uh, uh, something will be like Pablo's dogs here in Washington, D.C. You say $1,500 a month rent and people say cheap. Well, you're going to be somewhere in Africa and in Lagos or Abuja saying, oh, my goodness. 30,000 U.S. Thank you, Lord, Sister Eleanor. We go to Sister Shirley. Sister Shirley, should we be afraid of this big bad wolf out of Washington? What do you take from this article? One thing I do recognize in this article, it do give you a set of different forces and their economic interests and role that it will play into the continuation of future chaos that will continue to take place in Africa until African people resolve it. Your take on this article, Sister Shirley. Well, I tell you, I I I would like to sound uh, hit a a uh, hopeful note, but I don't think I can uh, on on this. I I think that the that the West is moving like a super Japanese uh, speed train on multiple fronts in Africa and other parts of of the world as well. And I see the establishment of these proposed bases that are mentioned in this article from 2021 to uh, 2025 is it's, it's like a uh, continuing, uh, uh, militaristic cancer that's spreading and i think that that uh, the the us is 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 pushing it uh as fast as possible also in in another article that i had read about uh uh what was going on with africom uh, talking about the goal is to put the U.S. military and European militaries and AFRICOM link them together so they can work in uh, concert, which uh, sounds as though that uh, that this this keeps Africa way too involved in forays that the United States and Europe, European military, uh, might be cooking up in areas that people don't need to be at. I, I cannot see uh, uh, anything good coming out of having U.S. and and European militaries uh, in Africa. 
and I think that it is um, that it has been extended so quickly. The other thing is the difference between leaders of a country and the people themselves. Um, and resistance, I think there is a lot of resistance in Africa among people when they observe uh, how much uh, the United States is, is infiltrating the continent. The question is, uh, is are, the, are the leaders of the countries in sync with that or not? I think in many countries they're not. And uh, so I, uh, I, I hope that resistance could uh, prevail. And as Anthony says, maybe it can. It just uh, seems as though that things are happening so fast um, that, many, that big parts of it may be very difficult to stop. Thank you, Sister Shirley. We'll go to Brother Moses. Brother Moses, you know, they tell me that um, like the technology that determines the victim, but it's the will and the organization level of the people. What do you make of this article, Washington is to take over Africa? Oh, Washington, Washington has its aspirations, but it's the people who will determine uh, what he has be, what will be done. Hopefully the people united will never be defeated, so we have to raise the consciousness of the people about about what's going on. We have to contend for the hearts and minds of the people and to educate them as to what exactly is going on. That's the only way to really stop it until, until the, the masses take it up. It's, it's, you know, the, the, few, the few will continue to dominate until the masses of the people take, it, take up the struggle, and uh, that's the real message. I mean, ultimately, it's like, I mean, of course, the 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 imperialists, you know, have their plans. They're going to do this and they're going to do that, and it's all going to be in the interest of Africa, and they, uh, according to the rhetoric. But but uh, but we know better, and so I'll leave it right there. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. I think we'll go back to Sister Eleanor. We lost her when she was um, giving her perspective on this article. Would you like to finish what you were trying to say, Sister Eleanor? The mic is yours. Oh, oh thank you. Um, yes, I, I was uh, saying that I think that uh, we should learn uh, from um, past experiences. We cannot fund, quote, militant groups uh, in uh, – in Uganda or or any country, Rwanda, pro-Rwanda militants and pro-Uganda militants, that's an absurdity. That's not our business. And the people in Uganda and Rwanda need to address these issues. Um, of the 50-plus countries in Africa, they must address their their political issues. But most importantly, I think that uh, the labor movement in the United States has been floundering for not, not at its own cause, but with these this right to work legislation that uh, uh, that you see that has been in existence for 30 years or so that came up 
after the Reagans and all of that stuff. These things have devastated the American worker. So what we have to do is organize. And we always talk about on this program, organize, organize. So, again, as we organize the masses to uh, political organizations as well as uh, labor organizations, we'll have the same impact as the uh, big imperialist or capitalist lobbies do. When I read in a previous article from uh, Africa on the Move about United Fruit and the devastation it had in Central America just so a company could maintain control over an industry. Well, when I looked at what happened with mine workers, uh, um, capitalists wanted to maintain control over copper mines in Chile and the tens of thousands of people that subsequently lost their lives or Guatemala and the hundreds of thousands of indigenous people that lost their lives. We need to stay out of other people's political business. No one invaded the United States when we had a fascist named Donald Trump in the White House. No one slam dumped us in the 80s when we had an Alzheimer's patient in the White House. So why on earth does the United States or any other nation think they have the right to support uh, uh, the democratic or encourage any democratic process in any other country. If we need to take care of our own business, we need to divest from the military settler state in Palestine. We need to take a look at what Winston Churchill established in the Middle East when he set up new nation states took a piece of Iraq and decided to call it Kuwait because we were offering people Uganda. We were offering them uh, uh, Kuwait. We were offering them South Africa. We were willing to offer them Palestine to make a Jewish settler state. And they selected Palestine. Look at the suffering we created. Look at Turkey, a newly founded country. It's taken over other nations and leaves those nations in ruin. Armenia. What happened to Armenia? Part of it in Turkey, part of it in another former Soviet country. We need to help bring back unity, to bring back the natural boundaries of nation states and stay out of funding pro militant forces in other nations. So this article made that clearer than ever when I looked at the first paragraph talking about us investing uh, in the pro-Uganda and Rwanda militants. That was outrageous. And then as I read further, it talked about the meeting in Mozambique where the corporations were planning on working with local businessmen. Well, we need to rethink that, as I was saying, because this is not the time to think about drilling for more oil or burning more fossil fuel, but it's a time to rethink how we power industry and how we power life as we know it how we create electricity, heat, air conditioning. 
We need to find alternative resources that will not harm the planet. If we think this is what's happening by 2030, someone is really not thinking. They're not aware of global warming and that we don't have time to uh, invest in oil. We have to think about solar, geothermal, wind, alternative energy sources that haven't been invented yet to reduce our carbon footprint, to save our Mother Earth for the generations to come. And as I was saying before I had my technical difficulty, right now with geo-warming, as we have known it, just in 2020 and the uh, the 2020 disasters, the unusual cold in Texas, and these wildfires burning in New Mexico of all places, and this is outrageous. So we got to stop and think and figure out how we're going to green the planet, not warm the planet and destroy the planet. And every time a, a species, whether it's a butterfly or a bumblebee, goes extinct, that's a way of cross-pollinization, gone forever, and we don't realize the, in, the impact and how it will affect all living things. So I think this article uh, uh, was very interesting, uh, but I, I think there will be no takeover of any nation or continent by any other country or any imperialist nation, whether it's the U.S. or China or whether it's the EU, won't happen. And the way we can assure it won't happen is by making sure that the young workforce of today in this United States realizes unions, 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 organize, organize, organize. Whether it's Brother Anthony's group, Sister Shirley's group, whether it's uh, Answer Coalition, whatever the group, organize, politicize, register to vote, join the unions, Keep them strong, and we will make our voices heard, and we will affect what will happen in 2022, let alone 2030. Thank you. Thank you, Sister Eleanor. Moving along, we're going to ask our listening audience if they can. We want to alert you to... Pay attention to a real interesting article. There's a lot you can learn and take from it. And we're going to try to share some of our thoughts on this particular article, and we're going to start with Brother Anthony. It was an article that was written by Glenn Greenwood uh, on June the 3rd, and uh, it titles The FBI Screen Amtrak Investigation Sheds Light on Covert Lad Leak Theory and Falsies Emails. It says the main screen institution doubt the FBI has solved 2001 Antrax case. Either way, revelations emerged by U.S. government bio labs have newfound relevance. 
Now, when we when when I took a look at me read that particular article, um, you know, it, to me it reminded me of additional people. I would paraphrase them, but the other talk where they often say that, you know, capitalism doesn't last so much time; it lasts all the time. And um, as we talk about what's going on today in relationship to this virus, you know, the question becomes, you know, is it possible that you know? Maybe this is the real reality of what took place based on um, evidence or information that they have suggested that this is something that was created, this is something that came from this particular um, country. This is something that this is something that has been used as a biological warfare to eliminate and to create situation situation that would be favorable to the powerful and elite. Uh, 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 of this particular imperial system. So I'll stop, Brother Anthony, and bring you in um, and share with our listening audience. Can you share with us some of the issues of concern that we have taken from this article that people should be concerned about? Brother Anthony. Yes, certainly, uh, Brother Africa. Um one is the poss uh one thing is the possibility that uh and uh this has uh been, been floating around for a couple of years that covid was developed in a in a lab and uh you know as part of a biological warfare effort there was research in done into uh communicable diseases like uh, viruses and whatnot. And what people should be asking themselves is, what purpose does this serve? And uh, who are the targets of this uh, warfare effort? And, uh, you know, and uh, looking at looking at history, uh the indigenous people around the world have been the primary targets of biological warfare for nearly five centuries. And uh, going back to the attacks on the indigenous people of the Western Hemisphere up until, you know, uh, 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 and continuing with attacks on, uh, uh, on Africans on the continent in order in order to depopulate the, uh, uh, you know, the areas so they could, uh, you know, seize land. And to the Pacific Islanders, uh, many of whom are of African descent, and, uh, you know, in trying to depopulate, uh, you know, the area uh, for imperialism's own interests, such as weapons development, et cetera. So we, uh, so people need to pay close attention, uh, you know, to these developments and look at who is being targeted by uh, these attempts and uh, and what purpose. And uh, you know, people need to share this information as far and wide as possible. And uh, we need to. Uh, you know, get organized in order to prevent uh, the, uh, you know, the uh, the international rule of bourgeoisie 
from carrying out his plans. Thank you, Brother Nancy. Sister Shirley, you know, in this article, it talks about Fauci. At least he is willing to admit that there is a possibility that this could may have been something that has been created. It could have been something of the works of the, of the U.S. government. It also could have been something that was um, that was leaked out, and, um, you know, they have not been forthright with it. So what do you take from this article, Sister Sharon? Well, I I think that uh, Glenn Greenwald probably gave a lot put a lot of his research that he did originally on the anthrax into the article, and he what he left out is exactly what Brother Anthony was talking about, and that is the people that may have been affected by any leaks of anthrax and also any um, other viruses used as part of bio-warfare. So um, it's too bad the article did not go more in that direction. But on the elaborate story that Glenwald did, uh, I mean, Greenwald did tell about anthrax. I think it's pretty obvious that that the that the FBI was first of all the FBI knew much of what had happened and who had been responsible for leaking the uh, anthrax. And all they were doing in these uh, stories was to try to 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 lead investigators off of the track of finding out that it was the United States government and then it came out of U.S. US labs. Also, I think that this article, since it went so deeply into anthrax, should have still looked a little bit closer to Hatful himself, since Hatful, as a young man, spent time in Zimbabwe. And I think it is still not clear what it was he was doing there. Uh, But uh, I believe that there were anthrax leaks and attacks there as well. Um, As for Fauci, um, uh, reference was, was made that maybe he did know at one time that there might have been uh, uh, a, a COVID late uh, out of China and then pretended uh, not to know that or went against it. I'm not sure. I think I, I've been pretty confused as to what Fauci thinks he's doing uh, in general throughout this entire COVID uh, ordeal. But one thing is for sure is that, that people all over the globe have been uh, um, uh, made sick, 
uh, and died from state-sponsored bio-warfare that has been either tested or specifically uh, designed to be used on them. And uh, with Fort Detrick uh, not being uh, too too far from here, uh, this is Fort Detrick is the home of Agent Orange. And when you look at the uh, devastation that that caused, uh, and looking at uh, Laos and Vietnam, Cambodia, other places. Uh, the overall conclusion here is that uh, state-sponsored use of these kinds of uh, insidious weapons, uh, that more investigation needs to be done and that states need to be uh, held accountable. Thank you. Thank you, Sheila. Eleanor. Based on your fact well, based on what's in the articles, well, what do you take from it? Um, my, the most important thing that uh, I have to agree with Sister Shirley and uh, uh, the previous speaker, um, we should definitely know that these 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 extremely lethal viruses or bacteria strains that we take from nature and make them insidious and and able to transfer and kill the masses will work against all of us. That's what we should learn from this pandemic, certainly. The the Agent Orange, there were many people who alleged that uh, HIV AIDS was a man-made virus. Then we saw Amtrak, and I've seen people in my community who were postal workers who were injured by Amtrak and other things coming through the mail where they lost their limbs. So we should have uh, abide by that 1969 uh, agreement against chemical and germ warfare. And because whether it's intentional or unintentional, whether it was uh, the leak, where whether it's from a Chinese-U.S. collaboration or not, isn't the point. The real point that I take home from this pandemic today and this article is that chemical viral germ warfare should be banned, bacterial warfare should be banned, and that there should be strict penalties for any nations or uh, uh, pharmaceuticals within nation-state boundaries that participate in such experimentation and development. And uh, when I read in the article that the uh, Ames version was from Fort Detrick's Maryland, I, 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 I was, I couldn't believe it. Agent Orange, Amtrak, what else? So the main takeaway is that all civilized, all people should know 
that any research with highly lethal viruses and bacteria strains should just be outlawed. Now, some might say, well, you have to use these 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 uh, these these virus and bacterial agents to develop uh, antivirus or anti uh, a serum of some sort. That may be true. However, the issue needs to be what type of global diplomacy do we need to establish that none of us would dare to do such development and experimentation? Rather put our resources into finding a cure for cancer, finding a way to stop global warming, but certainly not to investigate and exploit viral and bacterial agents. That That's outlawed, and those laws need to be enforced. And the U.S. needs to, we need to lead by example by opening up our research laboratories to let people know what we're doing and everyone else should do the same. Thank you, Sister Eleanor. Brother Moses. Yeah, um, I think people have pretty much covered every territory. Uh, I would be redundant. Uh, but uh, the problem, you know, as, as we, when we come to the conclusion of the matter is the government, um, you know, this this capitalist government uh, that protects and and uh, perpetuates this kind of uh, insanity, um, this warfare, this 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 uh, military-industrial complex, this war machine, um, and we need to stop the war machine. So that's the real deal. Uh, all these are examples of of how the war machine. Uh, <coughs> It's killing us. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Butler. Brother Haki, it seems to me that when you look at the history of the MO of the West and of this particular government, it don't seem too unfetched in terms of some of the possibilities that were listed in this article. Also, if you have signed an agreement to not to manufacture biological materials and weapons while you do that secretly and end up getting busted for it. What does that say of someone who continues to behave in that capacity? Have we seen this story before? And this is why I have always told people to be skeptical and do not necessarily or don't take the damn shots if you don't have to. Because I don't think they'll come forthright dealing with this whole issue of these these vaccinations. Recently, I saw a panel discussion between Europeans in Europe and in America where they are talking again about eliminating five to six billion people. And the little European boy came out straight out and said the first starting point would be the continent of Africa because they don't own, control, they're useless, and you know, that would be the first place. But just that idea of talking about eliminating five to six billion people, what do you think would be probably the best method 
to be used the two to do this. When you look at how viruses can kill on a mass basis. No response to this article, Brother Hakeem. Yeah, let me just uh, let me just take up something that you said earlier, Brother Africa, about capitalism lies all the time. Uh, a brief history, I think, is important that people understand this. Back in 2001, remember, the Antrax uh, scare, they accused, remember, they accused Saddam, Saddam Hussein of, of disseminating anthrax. All right, that, of course, was a lie. They later turned around and accused a biodefense researcher by the name Bruce Iden and said he was responsible for that. This poor man took his life. It was later revealed that the, according to Dr. Dr. Klein, Klein of North Arizona University, a scientist, it was later revealed that the strain of anthrax, the AIM strain, actually was produced in a U.S. laboratory, in particular Dietrich, Fort Dietrich in Maryland. Clearly, it's very it's ironic, uh, and people talk about patriotism, but the bottom line is that when the government needs a scapegoat, they don't care who you are. And it's very ironic that they took this man, this man who spent his life in terms of creating these viruses, specifically because the United States asked him to do so, they used him as a scapegoat to say that he was, in fact, responsible for the dissemination of anthrax, when, in fact, he wasn't responsible for that. And Dr. Kahn proved that he was responsible for that. But, nonetheless, this man is now dead. Secondly, back, remember back in 2009, remember the swine flu pandemic, uh, the H1N1? Remember, uh, the uh, Director General of the World Health Organization, Margaret Chan, uh, she touted the danger in terms of the uh, spread of H1N1. And uh, she talked about the fact that um, this, this H1N1 has the potential to affect 40% of the American people over a two-year period. Hundreds of thousands of people will die. Uh, and she even went on to, to, to speculate that, uh, not to worry, we're going to create, the United States, we're going to create 4.9 billion shots a year at a cost of $10 per dose less for developing countries. It turned out that was a lie. This whole pandemic, H1N1, it was a lie. Uh, it turned, you know, and, and despite this lie, uh, you know, um, even today, most people don't even, most people totally forgot about the whole, the whole debacle back in 2009 with the N1N1, I mean H1, H1N1, in terms of how they scared the population to death, in terms of doing precisely, you know, believing in, believing in anything and everything that they are told. Lastly, Brother Africa, I think of COVID-19. Uh, you know, one thing, you know, people, people are absolutely correct in terms of analysis, in terms of what transpired. But recently, it comes to light. Uh, you know, um, there was a, a, a virologist out of China, Dr. Jian Yixi. Uh, he used genetically bred mice uh, to carry human protein in the cell of their airway. He injected uh, this COVID-19 to, you know, to see how it affected cells of the, of the particular mice. He found that in the middle of this, in the middle of this, uh, in the middle of this, in, in, in the middle of this, uh, this, 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 um, this so-called COVID-19, he discovered there was a, a, a genetic material called furin clevitite. Uh, this, this genetic material, Brother Africa, sets in the middle of the spike protein. Now, the spike protein facilitates or makes possible for viruses to infect human cells or cells generally. All right. Now, here's the interesting thing. Of the COVID-19 class of, of, of viruses, they're called sebeco or sebeco viruses. Okay. All right. These sebeco viruses, or the strain, or this particular strain that um, COVID-19 belongs to, they don't have furin COVID, COVID, COVID sites. 
So this genetic material doesn't exist in the class of Sobeco viruses. So the example of Sobeco viruses would be SARS-1 and SARS-2. None of these viruses have furin COVID site. So the question is, where did this genetic material come from? Now, the article goes on to say that, interestingly, interestingly enough, is that, you know, uh, you know, in terms generally in terms of evolution of viruses, it takes a while in terms of evolution to mutate to the point where they can infect a human cell. But the article goes to say that this COVID-19 has been able to do this over a relatively very short period of time. And so they find that extraordinary in terms of this, in terms of the makeup of the so-called COVID-19. So the question obviously is, if this is not the result of a, of a, a viral mutation, then if, if, if in fact the furin cleven site material exists in COVID-19, then it didn't come from the viruses, the, the class of viruses per se, it came from some other place. It came from outside of those viruses. So the only explanation could be that it came from a lab. Interestingly enough, Fort Detrick in Maryland, the United States refuses to allow access to any, any, foreign, any foreign people to, to come, foreign scientists to come in to investigate in terms of the inner workings of, of, you know, of, 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 of Fort Detrick. Now, here's the thing. Back in 1972, the Biological Weapons Convention was approved by the United States government. It states that it's illegal to create <coughs> biological, weaponry, biological weapons for the purpose of military application or to kill people off. Well, you know what? Despite that, signing that convention, the U.S. still persists in, in, in creating biological weaponry. So it goes to your question in terms of biological control, Brother Africa, and population control, Brother Africa. So when we talk about population control, the need to, to, to kill off three to five billion people or, or the planet, <clears throat> uh, when they say that that's, 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 a, that's, a, that's, that's, a, that's something that they want to achieve, they're not simply saying that simply because, uh, you know, they just want to be uh, mean-spirited. They're saying that because in order for this system to survive, in order for capitalism to survive, people must perish. People must die. So if to the extent that people are dying, you create disarray in those societies, those people are more vulnerable to manipulation. They're much more vulnerable to military intervention. And so, therefore, it's in their interest, the West's interest, in terms of eliminating large numbers of people throughout the world. Does COVID-19 and other viruses play a role in terms of eliminating the population to a certain extent, debilitating or weakening the immune system of, of, of people around the world? Of course it does. Does the weakening of the immune system contribute to deaths, early deaths of human beings? Of course it does. Does this play into a grand strategy in terms of, you know, in terms of Western autonomy? Or oh, not Western autonomy, but Western's attempt to impose this will on the rest of the world? Absolutely. So when we look at these viruses, and you're absolutely correct, Brother Africa, one of the things is that when you start talking about COVID-19, one of the things that is experimental, so you can't talk about COVID-19 without talking about nanotechnology. See, nobody wants to talk about nanotechnology. Uh, they admit that they use nanotechnology in conjunction with the vaccine, COVID-19 vaccine. But no one wants to talk about the impact, the potential impact of nanotechnology on the human body, particularly when nanotechnology breaks off and affects the human body, which forms free radicals, which adversely impacts the, 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 the human uh, immune system, along with the kidney, lungs, and liver. Recently, there have been, over the last three months, there have been numerous reports of people dying from taking the COVID-19 vaccine. BMR has actually taken the, the COVID root, uh, uh, um, he actually taken COVID uh, shots twice. Uh, so according to the recommendations, he fulfilled all requirements in terms of taking COVID-19 vaccine. He still came down with COVID-19. 
is there some relationship between you know BMR taking COVID nineteen on two different two two different occasions and still coming down with COVID nineteen and nanotechnology? It's very plausible. But the problem is that the people in positions of power, those positions who gain information by subjecting people to this to this impacts in terms of how does how does technology impact human beings? This is part and part of the reason part and part of the reason why they're mandating that people have to take it. We're taking pay people to take it. So you want to keep your job, you take the COVID-19 vaccine. So you got this huge uh, 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 sample of human beings who are taking COVID-19. Now all the powers that be have to do is the scientists who are engaged in this kind of research and to sit back and observe the, the, how, the, how the nanotechnology works in relation to COVID-19 once it's injected into the human body. These people are diabolical. Make no mistake about it. Make no mistake about it. And one thing that a lot of doctors have been adamant about, they keep telling people, do not take these vaccines that are coming out. The sister who left and went to Panama, she left here, she left here about, 12, about 12 years ago. She said she's not coming. I can never remember her name. She said she's not coming back. She said, but I'm going to give you a warning before I leave here. He said, please, whatever vaccines they come up with, please do not take them. He said they're specific, she said they're specifically designed to weaken your immune system. If, the, if she, what she's saying is correct, if they're designed to weaken your immune system, then it'll make you more, uh, more prone to infections, which means more prone to early death, which, which means the potential in terms of infecting you know, your offspring in terms of, you know, uh, you know, you know at, at child-bearing child, uh, bearing, bearing ages. So clearly, Brother Africa, uh, the action, to answer your question, you're right. Population control is something that we've got to be very concerned about. And so when we look at the military maneuvering and we look at the political strategizing that's going on in the West, then we've got to begin to ask ourselves, what is the long-term result of this political strategizing, this military intervention? What does it really mean? If it means a fundamental reduction in terms of uh, those things human population needs, then we can theoretically uh, concede I'm not materially agree that perhaps it's about eliminating the population, and we must understand the nature of the beast. And I'll close with that. And let me just add a little personal note to the discussion around the issue of vaccine and um, the game that may be being played on our people. Recently, I directed in Canada on uh, this phenomenon. And I just would like to get um, your, your, your response to it. How would y'all would have response? I was um, giving the order to make sure I have um, a official document that I have received a shot for yellow fever. I'm in process of trying to travel to go to West Africa. I need my documentation saying I had a yellow fever shot. Well, in reality, I had the documentation, but I lost it. So that means I might have been required to get another shot. So the process of going to get this shot, I talked to the pharmacy. First and foremost now, it's really interesting. You no longer can go to the hospital to get these shots. Some kind of way they have organized certain pharmacies in these cities to give these kind of medical shots. So anyway, I went to this pharmacy, and he told me that, you know, if you basically have already had it, you should need another shot. But because I don't have proof of it, then I might have to get this other shot, Right. But when he told me two things, he told me that the yellow fever shot that they are giving to people today is not the same uh, makeup of the yellow fever shot that I had, you know, several years ago. I asked him why, and he really couldn't explain it. 
Then he had me fill out a long, long, a long form of many papers. And in the papers, it, it has you committing to saying that you are participating in an experiment, um, experiment, um, what's the word for it, when, when you're doing your um, trial and stuff, experiment trial, by taking the shot. And nobody would be held responsible for it. Man, I thought that to be very interesting. What the hell is signing these papers? And why are he talking about this experiment trial? And two, he could not explain if what you have been taking for has been effective of uh, eliminating job people, keeping forgetting it. Why there was a need to change the makeup and it's made of new materials? So I refused to take it. Did I do anything wrong? Panelists, what do y'all make of that particular phenomenon? Shirley, Brother Anthony? No, no, you didn't. Uh, You you were concerned. No, you were concerned about the safety of that particular drug. And, uh, And the fact that it was different in nature from the vaccine, from the yellow fever shot you had, you know, uh, years back, and uh, and and without knowing the chemical composition of these vaccines and what effect it might have on your body, you are right not to take it. And uh, and also the fact that they uh, those those papers you had to sign were probably legal documents, disclaimers, exalting. Mm-hmm. Exalving the pharmaceutical companies of any responsibility right. in case something went wrong. In other words, and uh, you know, an interesting thing that even the even the the the, the media admits the thing about these COVID vaccines is they do not necessarily prevent you from getting COVID nineteen. Again, which I find interesting, but they, uh, but you have all these celebrities and political figures talking about how safe uh, these vaccines are. Sums up. But brother Africa, yes, this is I'm listening. Yes. Uh, yes, I th- no. I think you you were very right uh, to steer clear of that uh, situation, and uh, that was clearly a uh, a trial that they were going to get you roped in, and a similar thing happened to my husband several years ago regarding hepatitis B. And a doctor who got a hold of him. I forgot the reason why my husband went initially to see him. But later on, it was found that uh, that my husband had hepatitis B antibodies that were in him. But we figured out it all started with this one particular doctor. So I think this is happening... Uh, on many different levels, 
uh, and involving several uh, um, uh, groups of doctors. Um, and uh, so, yes, I, I, I'm not surprised at anything that I hear about any vaccine or other uh, uh, testing with individuals that takes place. Just imagine all the people who have to go to Africa, and particularly West Africa, places where they say you need a zealous shot. I've been forced yeah. to do predicament. Just think about that. Anyone else would like to respond to my phenomenon? I'd just like to say ditto, uh, Brother Africa. I think anything that you have to sign or release and waivers of that type, you're participating in some um, pharmaceutical experiment steer away from. And to add to that point, uh, to add to that point, I'd also like to, know, like to say in terms of this trial, this trial demonstration, the company that w- was doing it was a foreign company out of y- Europe. There's only two companies where this particular uh, yellow fever uh, vaccine came under. The one, this one came under, it was accountable to report only to the company in Europe, not no company or no agencies in America. I just found that really oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. And this is the reality. So, those who hear this, you know, hear, hear this information, please, you know, be careful. Don't believe the hype. <clears throat> but anyway, panelist John, well done. This is going to be a two-part series. This is the first part of a two-part series. Don't be afraid of the Big Bang Wolf. What we're going to do, we're going to take a quick uh, break. When we come back, we've got each one of y'all to give us your final thoughts tonight. This is Africa on the Moon.
wasn't you back to we have to go to move if I had all the damn money in the world I'd burn up also. This is Africa to move we in the seat, we're gonna take the heat as we define it, we're gonna stand behind it. This is part one of a two part series. Don't be afraid of the big bad wolf. At this point in time, our political panel analysts, they're gonna give us their closing thought for tonight, but before they do that, I would like to make, like to make an announcement and remind our listening audience that we invite you to come and join Africa on the move, African Women Association and other progressive organizations who are going to be taking a freedom ride trip to Cuba in December the 27th to January the 3rd. Come and join us. If you're interested in coming and joining us, please email us at africaonthemove2 at gmail or email the African Awareness Association at African Awareness Association 2 at gmail as well. So put that on your calendar. It's an excellent time to bring in the new year, but more importantly, we're going to now to learn about Cuba but give them and show my appreciation for all they have done for Africa and humanity and continue to do. Come and join us. So right now, let's go into our final closing remarks. And we'll start out with our brother Moses. We'll come to you, Moses, right now. Give us your final thoughts and remarks for today's program. Well, it's been a very interesting and educational program as usual. Um, I think, you know, we have to continue to read, uh, uh, use newspapers, television, whatever information sources is available, Internet, and educate ourselves um, and educate others, went over the hearts and minds of the people to socialism, to scientific socialism, to a need for revolution, to a need for health care and education. And uh, we need to stop the war machine and all the billions that is poured into the war industry. And uh, so anyway, this has been good. See you next week. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. Next week, go to Sister Eleanor. Sister Eleanor, your final thoughts for tonight. I want to thank you all uh, so much for this wonderful show this evening. Today was a very sad day for my family and myself. There was a death in my uh, family, and it's been very sad uh, this weekend in particular today. And I am so glad that I was able to push forward in this show anyway and, and to hear the wonderful insights and and to continue to uh, uh indulge in this educational, informative information. As always, I just have to say to the panelists, to all the persons that work on this show, that listen and participate, thank you for your wonderful work. I just want to thank you for your wonderful work, everyone, and have a wonderful week. And God bless you and, and your family. And you thank Suzelle North, and our condolences go to your family and um you know, if we can do anything, feel free to call us. Um, next, we'll go. Next, we'll go, Sister Shirley. Sister Shirley, your final thoughts for tonight. Yes. Hi, Eleanor. I just wanted to offer my condolences to you as well. You know, I heard something in your voice as soon as you got on the phone that told me that there was something wrong. I felt it. So I. I'm sorry, and our thoughts and prayers are, are with you. Um, 
as for my uh, concluding thoughts, for, first of all, thank you very much for all of the uh, analysis shared uh, by the uh, panelists on the variety of topics we had before us tonight. And as for the uh, don't don't be afraid of the big bad wolf. I think I, I'll have to, at least from my perspective, amend it and say be wary of the big bad wolf, especially if they are in numbers. Make sure you have your comrades with you and that you got powder in the gun just in case. That's it. Thank you again. Good night, everybody. Thank you, Sister. Thank you, Sister Shirley. Big score Brother Hackey. Brother Hackey, you find your thoughts for tonight? Yes, of course. My condolences to Sister Eleanor. Uh, you know, um, yeah, she did. Uh, yes, like Sister Shirley, I thought of since uh, she wasn't her usual exuberant self, but we're glad to have her. Uh, she's a great uh, inspiration. Uh, she's a great asset to the program. Uh, my final statement is, is, is very simple, Brother Africa. Uh, the situation you know, for humanity uh, is, is, is becoming perilous. Uh, the level of propaganda employed by those in positions of power, we can't take it lightly. Uh, we have to understand that what they do, uh, they do 365 days a year. They've been doing it for a very long time. They're very precise in terms of how they're going about doing it. In the process, they're very, they're very capable in terms of manipulating a lot of people in terms of their thoughts and even their emotions. Uh, we have a real, a real struggle before us in terms of getting people to understand that, you know, we have to reject this notion in terms of uh, emotionalism and begin to deal with, with, the, with the science, begin to deal with the, the history, the politics uh, <clears throat> behind um, the, the kind of events that take, take place in society. The more we understand, you know, the role institutions play in terms of shaping society, the better off we'll be. Uh, as much as I would, you know, I, you know, I, 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 I take no pride in terms of, you know, uh, castigating anybody, but I got to tell you, my least favorite group as a group is black conservatives, uh, simply because when we think about the oppression of African people, these guys are very useful in terms of uh, – <clears throat> Uh, the system using them for the sole purpose of disseminating disinformation or propaganda. They think that they're doing something that's scholarly, or they think they're doing something that's um, that's, that's applicable. In reality, uh, what it is is the opportunism. And unfortunately, so when you talk about someone like Uncle Tim, you talk about propensity to say that racism doesn't exist. When he said those kind of things, uh, he tends to turn his back on hundreds of hundreds of centuries. I mean, four, four centuries. Of, of oppression uh, And turning your back on fourth century's oppression Not only do you not understand the oppression That historically exists You don't understand the oppression that exists currently To willingly To walk around blindly In terms of, in the face of You know, these, these traumatic contradictions That exist in society Seems to me is somehow Seems to me on, on a fundamental level Very self-destructive And for that reason I cascade black conservatives Because I think that uh, uh, A lot of the positions that they take are counterproductive to the aspirations, to the longevity, or the survivability of African people in the society. And so for that reason, I castigate them. I don't take no joy in that. I would like to simply say, well, they got to offer an opinion. Okay, simply offer an opinion, that's one thing. But when that opinion has potential in terms of um, contributing to our destruction, then I don't take it lightly. 
But having said that, Brother Africa, as always, you know, I encourage people to unravel the, mat- the matrix. Uh, that is key. Uh, without understanding, without unraveling the matrix, then the possibility in terms of moving forward becomes that's much more difficult. And having said that, you have a good night. Thank you, Brother Aki. And next will be Brother Anthony. Your final thoughts for tonight, Brother Anthony. Yes, uh, Brother Africa. Uh, my condolences to Eleanor and her family over her loss. And uh, I want to, uh, you know, um, you know, say that uh, in light of what we've uh, of the issues we've looked at tonight, it's apparent that it becomes more important than ever for Africans around the world to get organized. There's no reason in the, with the variety of organizations out here that Africans do not belong to an organization. And if you don't like, the, like any of the ones that exist, create your own. But it's important uh, to, for us to get organized uh, to achieve uh, pan-Africanism, uh, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism, because that is the ultimate solution to the problems Africans face worldwide. And please visit our website, www.a-aprp-gc.org to learn more about our party, the All-African Peoples Revolutionary Party, GC, and our objective, Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Thank all our panelists. Thank all our listening audience, friends and supporters for allowing us to come to our home this evening where we could speak truth to the powerless and the powerful. I'd like to make a couple quick announcements as a reminder. Number one, we'd like to again remind you to come and join Africa on the Move and the African Women's Association as they begin to plan and organize for their Freedom Ride Black History Education and Culture Trip to Cuba from December the 27th to January the 3rd. If you, your friends, and family may have an interest in going please email us at africaonthemove2 at gmail.com or email the African Wellness Association at Association 2 at gmail.com. Number two, we'd like to encourage you, if you have not been able to see the webinar on nuclear imperialism, we had the special guests of Bob Brown and Brother John, um, my brother, um, Brother John can't think of his last name, but it was it was an excellent program. Please take Brother John Steinbeck. Please take some time to go to the All African People of British Party GC website at www.a-aprp.gc and check out that webinar on nuclear imperialism. And last but not least. We just would like to remind you that this is a program that comes on weekly, Sunday, from 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Please spread spread the word. Help us popularize this program. The only thing we want to do is keep you informed and give you information so you can think. 
So until next time, I'd like for you to remember the words of Frederick Douglass as we continue our battle towards this path of our true liberation and unification as a people and our and trying to make our proper contribution to humanity is to remember the words and lesson of Frederick Douglass as he stated that if there is no struggle, there is no progress. Those who profess to favor freedom and yet depreciate education are beings who want crops without plowing up the ground. They want rain without thunder and lightning. They want the ocean without the awful roar of its many waters. The struggle may be a moral one, or it may be a physical one, or it may be both moral and physical. But it is, but it must be a struggle. Power conceives nothing without a demand, and never did, and it never will. Remember no words. Remember no lessons. And next time, I leave you with words. Not yet, Yuhuru, We are that yet free. Let's continue down the road of liberation. This has been Africa on Moon. As your host, Brother Africa, we can always strive to go forward our backwards level. Again, not yet, Yuhuru. We are not yet free. Goodbye. Hello.